You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes or so, you'll be listening to a follow-up interview that I've managed to record with Paul Draper, ex of Manson, who, if you might remember, was on the Blue Box Podcast a couple of years ago on one of our Christmas episodes. Um, Now, sadly, we had been trying to get this interview together, where Paul picks his favourite Doctor Who stories, for about a year or something like that and we'd had several dates planned and things had fallen through and Paul's been so busy doing his tours and his solo album eventually we finally managed to find a time and wouldn't you know it Paul got locked out by his Skype account so we had to improvise and compromise and so unfortunately the sound quality on this interview is not as good as it could have been um There are a few pops and buzzers that I've mostly managed to get rid of and a few dropouts as well, I'm afraid. But the conversation, you can hear it perfectly well. It all makes sense. Uh, It's probably not as bad as I'm making it sound. But I thought I ought to come on before you listen to it and just uh, give a little explanation for what happened. Um, But first, before the interview, what you'll hear, going back to Paul's first appearance on the podcast, where the Anchorus album, Confessions of a Romance Novelist, that he had produced and helped co-write, was just about to come out. What you're about to hear first is a short medley of a few of the tracks from that. I'm JR. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, JR. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Um, I take it you've been rather busy of late. I have, yeah. I mean, you know, I've been a globe trotting, so I've done um, uh, a couple of UK tours where 
So we mainly did my own solo stuff now because I'm a solo artist, but we also performed um, Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern album. And, you, you know, if any of your listeners know me as a, a, a aside from being a Doctor Who aficionado, <laughs> that's, that's probably the album they'd know the best, you know. So, uh, so yeah, we played that in its entirety around the UK, and then I was off to America for a few weeks supporting Wilson, the King of Prague, and uh, we played played a lot of shows on the East Coast. So, so that was great. So I'm back now and uh, and uh, in the studio now working on my second solo album. Yeah. Well, we will come to all this later. You had a slight drop out there. It was Steve Wilson, you said. Stephen Wilson, yeah, who's like the King of Prog Rock. And actually, he um, collaborated with you on one of the tracks of one of your recent EPs, didn't he? Yeah, the first EP that I did um, as a solo artist a couple of years ago now, uh, me and Stephen collaborated on a song called No Ideas. It's actually not on my solo album, Spooky Action, but but it is on EP1. So, And obviously these days, if anyone's listening to your podcast and want to check it out, you don't have to go and buy the record as such. You know, it's, I think it's more like the, you know, once you become really into an artist that you'll go out and buy their, buy their stuff. But you can check this stuff out, my stuff out on YouTube, my YouTube channels or Spotify or Apple Music or whatever streaming service you were, uh, you know, and uh, and see if it's your cup of tea, really. Well, and speaking of seeing if it's your cup of tea, they'll obviously I'll obviously be playing a little bit. I have already, as long as I've remembered to edit it correctly, played a little bit from the Anchorus album, um, Confessions of a Romance Novelist, which was what was just about to come out last time we spoke. If anybody remembers, you were producing and co-writing some of the songs and playing on some of the songs. Um, And we spoke literally just a couple of weeks before it was out. What was the reception like? How did it go down? Well, amazing, you know. I mean, uh, I think... um... Um, obviously, the anchoress or Catherine was an unheard of artist at the time, and uh, just this weekend she, she was of uh, Simple Minds on the big, the big weekend. You know, the Radio One um, extravaganza that they were showing on TV. So, if anyone caught Jim Kerr doing his thing and sees a auburn-headed lady in the background, that's the anchoress who's their special guest. Uh, <laughs> that's in uh, touring with the Manic Street Preachers as well, and. I think her album went over to do on to do over ten thousand physical copies in the UK, and we got nominated for the Welsh Music Prize. Um, we got Welsh um, HMV Album of the Year, and at the Prog Awards, we won Best Newcomer with the album as well. So it was uh, it was it was an incredible achievement, really, for a, a little album that I did in my studio in Acton, and uh, it's been really successful. And Catherine's now. Um, coming towards the end of working on the second Anchoress album and the the lead single from that, which you'll, you'll hear on sort of Radio 6, if you're a BBC Radio 6 type listener, over the next few months, and that's a duet between Catherine and James Dean Bradfield from the Manic Street Preachers, and it's a song I wrote with them. So, uh, yeah, exciting time for the Anchoress. Oh, wow. I was just going to say, have you been working on the second album too? But uh, obviously you are. Yeah, I've been. Yeah, I've been. You know, not not producing the album, but more sort of executively getting involved in the drum takes and a bit of uh, a bit of advice while Catherine takes over the reins. And then obviously I've got involved 
with the writing side, writing a few things, and have written the first single from the album with her, but not as much as an involvement on the first album, but still involved. I mean, the main reason being that my solo career has taken off now. You know, after being in Manson for so many years, I didn't think I would be a performer again, but um, my solo career has taken off, and that's taken off, you know, pretty much most of my time. We will come to that in a minute. Let's change the subject slightly first. Well, I say slightly, rather a lot, actually. But oh, before we do, I bought the Anchorus album and I love it. Um, changing the subject, one of the reasons you've come on today is you're going to pick your top five favourite Doctor Who stories. Um, anybody who knows Mansa will know you've got the fourth Doctor on the front of the sixth album and Tom Baker actually narrates a track on that album. So it's not like it's any surprise to find that you uh, like Doctor Who. But we will talk about your top five. Do you want to tell me what the first of your five stories is that you've picked? Yeah, well, you know, obviously um, Tom Baker and John Pertwee were, were my era, really. So, you know, I'm going to stick around that period. And obviously, if anyone knows Manson, we know on the second album, Six, we, we actually got Tom Baker in to do the lead vocals on, on one of our songs. So he, he is sort of the fifth man. And I, I probably hazard the only... Um, Doctor Who to have a uh, to get a platinum record by <laughs> <laughs> Manson, but there you go. But uh, yeah, so the first episode I'm going to go for is Terror of the Zygons. Oh, classic stuff! Do you, I take it you watched that when it was first on the telly? Yeah, I remember it the first time round. Yeah, you know it was that I must have been four or five or something when that 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 came out, and that was. Um, and I do remember, I actually remember going back and thinking I was too young to watch that and actually found out that they did repeat it about 18 months later. I think it might have been on BBC Two. So I actually probably caught the, the 76 reruns, I think, um, or, or yeah. whatever year it was rerun. Um, but anyway, it was, uh, yeah, I remember being absolutely terrified by that one. I mean, it's a bit different now because obviously... DVD and you know watching the Zygons twist their, their uh, you know control panels isn't quite as scary when you realise it's a seventies tea towel holder. But you know, <laughs> it's all in the writing, isn't it? It's all in the writing. Oh, and the performances too. There's the actually phenomenal. yeah, phenomenal. some of the stuff with Sarah and Harry running around the village is quite terrifying. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's other, there's other episodes that are great. Like the Android Invasion is another great one from that era as well, where it's that, that sort of, uh, you know, desolate English village where you can't trust anyone type of thing. That is a fantastic, um, you know, it's uh, England or Scotland in the case of Terror of the Zygons. It can be a sort of terrifying place, can't it, once you, you put all the Doctor Who characters in, in it and... Uh, and um, yeah, I think that I, I think Terror of the Zygons is typical of, of that era where that, that to me that's the greatest era of the you know the the outside broadcasting shots were just beautifully filmed you know. Yeah, 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 and sticking you know monsters in an English village is basically just quintessential Doctor Who. That's what I always think of when I think of Doctor Who. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's a, it's a uh, that's a winner, that isn't it? Yeah, and you, you, there's uh, you know, and you know, the village is always empty, and the the landlord of the pub's always an android or a zygon. Or <laughs> yes, something. exactly. You know, that's, that's you know, it's a 
it's a well-trodden path, but 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 absolutely works, you know. Ah, completely. Oh, that's a great choice for your top five. What's up next? Okay, the next one I'm going to pick is uh, Destiny of the Daleks. Really, that's an interesting choice, Destiny of the Daleks. Yeah. Go on. Well, I mean, Genesis of the Daleks, I've watched three times, and it's such a classic episode. Um, and I just remember as a child watching Genesis of the Daleks and just being absolutely mind-boggled by it and then spending the next, must have been three or four years, was it, between Genesis and Destiny? Yeah, four every, years, I think. Four years. Every four, every Saturday night when Doctor Who was on, just sitting down and going... When is the next Dalek episode coming on? And I remember sitting in front of the TV, first episode of the new series, you know, new graphics, and it comes up, Destiny of the Daleks, and just being the most single exciting thing that there was a new Dalek episode on. Because obviously when, when you're eight years old, the four years of your life, like 50% of your lifespan. Um, it is, um, yeah. And so I've always got an, an amazing soft spot for Destiny of the Daleks, and uh, you know, it's—I mean—it's got all the Destiny, the the the, the Mabel and the Android race, and of course they bring Davros back into it, and uh, it's—I I just think it's a fantastic episode. That was my—that um, was my episode as a kid, and of course Tom Baker didn't do another uh, Dalek episode after that, so it was. Uh, yeah. But my, um, you know, that 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 peak Dalek for me really until until I've gotten a lot older and VHS videos comes out came out and I could go and get all the uh, John Pertwee Dalek episodes which were superb as well you know oh uh, yeah oh the thing about I remember I I'm a couple of years older than you but I would be about 10 I guess when Destiny of the Daleks was on and I remember you know middle of the second episode halfway through the story return of davros was a real shocker oh yeah that was just it was just fantastic wasn't it yeah yeah that was a great moment actually because you didn't i i think i was starting to suspect that that's who they were looking for but until he actually turned up i was right on the edge of my seat yeah yeah that was mind-boggling yeah and then and then Obviously, the whole plot of why they'd come back to get him because these two robot races were locked together in a war and they needed an advantage in their 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 lifelong battle. In fact, I, I think the Mavellans would be would be a great character to bring back now. Actually, I think they're an underrated enemy. Yeah, yeah. Well, they actually had a twenty-second appearance in one of the episodes last year. They were literally just on screen for about three shots. Oh, right. that's it. <laughs> A bit of a shame we could have done with a bit more of them. Disco robots, what's not to love? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they they were very very off their time, weren't they? Yeah, they were very. Mm. Um, yeah, they they could have you could have easily put a band together in 1978. Then <laughs> it would have looked just exactly the same. I tell you, one of the other things about Destiny of the Daleks is Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was script editor on the series at the time and probably had quite a bit to do with writing that script. It was probably Douglas Adams who came up with the idea of the the two um, 
races being locked in this impossible sort of logical impasse. Yes, it's, it's, it's like almost like a dialogue from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, there's many elements that's great. Yeah, I mean, that's the story at the, eight, the end is is great, you know. I mean, I think, the, uh, I think it was filmed well and Scarrow looked great in its usual, you know, uh, Surrey, uh, you know, quarry <laughs> disguise and... Uh, you know, I thought it was a great episode, you know, but uh, it, it just that that was just my episode that I remember as a kid, right at the height of my Doctor Who craziness when I, <laughs> you know. To- yeah, I totally agree. That is, uh, yeah, I've got a real soft spot for that too. That's not one of the fan favourites, but I don't really know why. I, I, I've always liked that. Yeah, and no, I think it's a great episode, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, um, a friend of mine borrowed it on borrowed it me on DVD last year and I watched it all over again and loved it again. <laughs> Shall we move on to number three then? Okay, number three for me is The Sontaran Experiment. Ah, filmed just around the corner from where I live. Oh, where's that? Well, I say just around the corner. I'm in Exeter and uh-huh. Sontaran Experiment is maybe half an hour's drive away, just on the edge of Dartmoor. Dartmoor, right, that's where it is. Okay, yeah, great, that makes perfect sense, yeah. Yeah, well, well I mean, it was filmed beautifully, wasn't it, depicting yeah. futuristic, desolate Earth, um, and uh, the Sontaran spaceship was, was beautiful, and was it Field Major Stye in this one, was it? With, with, with Stye, yeah, Stye. Stye was... Uh, Probably my ultimate son, Sontaran character. I think, I think he he just nailed it then. With the, uh, I think you know coming, you know obviously Sontarans appeared appeared with Pertwee in um, the Time Warrior, but I think Steyer nailed nailed the whole uh, character really. And I don't think they've I don't think they've, they've got them as good now. The, the new reboot of Doctor Who. I don't, I don't think there is. You know, they're not as horrible and, you know... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit repulsive back in the day, weren't they? Whereas they're a bit more slick now. Well, Steyer in particular, that whole story, he's a real nasty brute of a Sontaran, isn't he? And I guess when you're four, five, six, whatever, that's terrifying. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that, that, the first episode where he takes his helmet off is just... <laughs> when you're a kid, that was literally frightening. It was literally terrifying. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great story. And I'll tell you one of the other good things about that story, and you're right, is that because getting alien planets and doing them right in Doctor Who has a bit hit and miss sometimes. Destiny of the Daleks, I think, does it really well. Sontaran Experiment, that location they've chosen on Dartmoor just looks absolutely stunning. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the outside broadcast side of uh, that era, the Pertwee Who era, because they were basically filming the, um, you know, with 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 uh, film that you would use in the cinema. So they had a real quality about them. They look they look fantastic. You know, it was a bit more cheaper when they went back into the indoor. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the, the, there's the famous sketch on Monty Python's about about the BBC switching from Minsulka. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, but um, yeah, once the, when they got it right on them outside productions, they're fantastic, you know. And um, yeah, you know, maybe there's a thread in the episodes that I like where the you know the production is based on on outside. You know, the ones where you know you would get Peter Davidson landing on a planet, and it was just like a load of 
you know, Christmas tinsel sprayed purple on the edge of the universe on a studio floor. Doesn't work for me. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And, yeah, something about Doctor Who going outdoors. Um, it's, we're close in age, and I think those are the stories. Not just, I mean, it's the it's in the acting, and it's in the stories, and it's in the script, but it's also in the directing, and when they go out, and they really go to town on convincing you that this is a proper sort of big BBC production, even though, really, it's just a kid series that they're throwing out on you know, tea time on a Saturday night. Yeah, you know, it, it was an odd one, wasn't it? It did start off, I mean, as a kids series, but, I mean, it's transcended so many things, you know. I mean, obviously, obviously, as you say, the, the, the scripts, you know, I'm not saying every script, but the scripts were phenomenal and, and um, it was so influential on so many other sci-fi productions, you know, even things like Star Wars, and I mean, to, to me, Darth Vader is literally just the ice, the, you know, the head ice warrior, you know, and it's, yeah. it's like, it's like, it's, it's so influential on so many things, you know, but um, it, it is quintessentially a British thing, you know, and um, there's been loads of great stories, you know, that have been studio-based, but yeah, when they put the productions into it, you go back to the Pertwee ones as well, things like in Inferno and the the Daemon, the Demons, or however you pronounce it. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things like that. I mean, you know, they they were big productions, you know, and uh, for the early 70s. Oh, I tell you what, it was a fantastic uh, production. was uh, The Sea Devils by Pertwee, which I've got on my, you know, top five favourite list because they, they had the speedboat, the hovercraft, which were... You know, it was a new British invention at the time, and um, and then and then of course the famous picture of the you know two dozen sea devils coming out of the sea, and yeah, and all the the unit base and the master, you know, in in his uh, you know in his uh, sea castle, you know, kept away from everybody, you know, it was just, you know they, they were you know but they were really big budget things, you know, they were it wasn't what people think of as cardboard sets. These were real yeah, yeah. productions, you know. Well, that, speaking of the Sea Devils, the Navy actually let them use a lot of that stuff for free, thinking what a great way to advertise what we do, as it were. So they they, they, they sort of <laughs> yeah, wrote us... Yeah, and how fantastic it looks when they do. Yeah, well, you know, it was... Um, I mean, it had everything, the Sea Devils, didn't it? From nuclear submarines to... You know, <laughs> explode. Yeah, yeah. Nuclear sea devil, but I mean, it was phenomenal, wasn't it? And um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, you know, I mean, that, you know, that 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 the, the I've sort of jumped to, to my what my third one now by accident. No, it's all right. Don't worry. Fourth, fourth, fourth <laughs> one. I tell yeah. you, no, 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 um, it's fine. Yeah, anyway, sea devils was, was my fourth one, but but um, but yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm seeing a thread here of the you know these big outside broadcast productions, lots of lots of unit members flying around, hovercrafts, you know, and uh, you know stuff like that. I, I you know I re I really loved um, all that era of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I tell you as well, something about it is how much fun it is. I mean, the idea of in the future, we'll have futuristic cars which will look exactly like Citroens, just with the doors taken off. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, that's really high tech, that wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that, 
a Moog synthesizer with a Doppler effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As they come, you know, speeding across a field with like about thirty unit members hanging off a door of Citroen. Yeah, that was the that was the fighting method of the future, wasn't it? Really. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, terrific fun. And you can you you can look back now. And you look at a lot of these things and you think, oh, that's really silly. That's really of its period. They wouldn't do it that way now. But the stories that you're choosing, I think, are all ones that kind of basically do. I mean, you've got the occasional thing like the Citroen, which looks a bit daft, but it looks daft in kind of a cute way. But really, these the stories that you're choosing, the ones with a lot of this stuff, kind of stand the test of time a lot better than maybe some yeah. of the others do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're a Doctor Who fan, especially if you're Doctor, or maybe you're a new Doctor Who fan and you're going back and, and um, re, you know, finding the, the original, the classic series. But if you're a fan of the classic series, the, the 70s classic series, I mean, like, to me, these are just the episodes that just jump out in my mind. But there, there's many, many more, you know. Yeah, it's kind. I think, you know, I think there's an element that you have to have a, uh, a, a suspension of reality with Doctor Who and also, and also go... You know, go with the flow of the fun of these episodes. You know, <laughs> and um, but you know, it's it's the the characters, the acting, uh, you know, the script, the story, and yeah, yeah, you know, and the, and um, yeah, I think you know, I guess when you throw them on, into all these outside budgets, they were great as well. You know, they're really great, and they hold up against a lot of stuff from its time. They're really, I find, really evocative of the. Well, yeah, I. You know, if I ever walk past something that looks like it might have been a street or a building or whatever, that looks like something that might have been in Doctor Who, instantly I'm like six years old again. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't even get through when I was on tour. I can't even get through Edinburgh Town Centre with stopping but doing the thumbs up and a selfie next to every Jarvis. You know. And... <laughs> And I can't even go to Scarborough. <laughs> or or Earl's Court, you know, everywhere where there's a TARDIS, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same, you know, and or, or you know, it's a, you know, it's it's everything really, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, the whole you know, the evidence of Doctor Who set, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like a barn. Oh, there's a Zygon in that barn. Or, you know, just silly things like that. Yeah, or a trench and you know there's a Dalek kinda of could be coming over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get to your last choice, then your fifth choice, can you remember? Because I'm talking of the Sea Devils. My first really big memory of Doctor Who is the Dalek story that came afterwards. But I, th my first memory of Doctor Who, full stop, is the Sea Devils coming out of the water. Can you remember what your very first Doctor Who memory would have been then? Yeah, um, my very, very first memory of Doctor Who was watching um, it could have been episode one of Genesis of the Daleks, it might have been repeat I right, right. the scene um, from the war on Scaro where there was some um, I think it was Thals in a trench uh, or, or, and, the, and there was basically a Dalek, you know, one of the grey early Dalek prototypes just going across the top of the trench that was my first ever memory wow um, and being absolutely terrified of, of the Dalek. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the things about Doctor Who, that sort of juxtaposition of weird things, like soldiers dressed like something out of World War One or World War Two, yeah. and then a Dalek. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Well, of course, you've got to remember the 70s, but, you know, we were only a couple of decades out of the Second World War, so the whole Nazi mm. symbolism that they used for the, you know, the, uh, the car-led hierarchy was still fresh in people's minds, you know, as a... Mm. You know, as a uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a touching point for for culture, you know. Yeah, absolutely right. And then the other thing, of course, is in the nineteen seventies, we'd only just had the sort of cultural revolution of the sixties. So a lot of the sort of sixties stuff is feeding into fashions and design choices and stuff on the television. So, sort of that that combination of sort of World War Two stuff. And your more sort of uh, ostentatious design choices made a lot of television, not just Doctor Who, but a lot of other television in the 70s as well. Things like Blake Seven, I suppose, and The Tomorrow People, and all sorts of things, even some sitcoms and stuff. Yeah, gave them a really. And a lot of kids' programs, you know, The Magic Round. Yeah. <laughs> People might have been just doing way too much acid at the university before they went to the BBC to start well, working. Well, maybe, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but there was... It was, it was a, um, a, you know, a, a real collision of, of uh, generations, wasn't it? Obviously, you had the old scarred and the stayed BBC set there, and you had a lot of young, more creative people coming up. Um, and, of course, for the audience, they don't, I, I identify with a character like Sarah Jane Smith or Joe Grant, who were like, you know, completely modern and not on, of that period of time onto the flares and the platform shoes and then suddenly thrust into a first world war battleground with a you know with the daleks flying around i mean it is incredibly odd yeah as you say these were incredibly odd times you know yeah but very distinctive and very memorable so so let's have your fifth choice then shall we okay so my last one is uh robot which is the obviously the first tom baker episode um, uh, which I absolutely, uh, absolutely love, really, and uh, probably one of the main reasons was that I, I had the giant robot, the toy. Oh, uh, right. I had the cardboard TARDIS and my uh, Doctor Who with his scarf and rubber hat, and and and. Uh, but I never had the Dalek as an enemy. I, I had the robot, the giant robot himself. Oh God, you're so lucky! I never. The only one of those I did have was the Dalek. I never had the others. I mean, these things must go for a fortune on eBay now. But you could put the Doctor in his TARDIS, and then you'd spin it round, and when it'd come back, he'd gone, and he was hidden in the back of the TARDIS. Oh. <laughs> and obviously, he'd, you know, disappeared into space. Was the was the inference of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, well, the story robot itself. It's terrific fun. It's a great, yeah, it's a great story. It's a really good introduction for Tom Baker. He's just getting up into the character in that one. And again, you know, a lot of it's outside. The special effects are great when he go, you know, when, he, when the robot grows and stuff. And um, the guys, the mad scientists and all the, the the unit guys, you know, it's a, you know, in the army base and harking back to the the World War, you know, everything, you know, the army. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I thought it was just a really for me, I, you know, I, Tom Baker's, you know, number one Doctor, but um, I do love um, John Pertwee as well. And um, but uh, yeah, yeah, a great episode. Yeah, I, I could have picked, I could have picked many other episodes, but they were the ones that sort of stuck in my mind really. But you know, that I thought I'd talk to you about. 
Oh yeah, no, that's fair enough. Well, when you pick favourite episodes, when people pick favourite episodes, sometimes they pick the best sort of stories. But the thing about favourites is, it's more about where you were and the specific types of things that you enjoy and the memories that those stories bring up for you, isn't it? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's this... Um... You know, there's, you know, there's lots of different episodes that evoke different memories for me. I mean, I don't remember the Pertwee episodes the first time around, but I went back and discovered and watched pretty much all the Pertwee stuff. Uh, I, I really loved it just as much as the Baker stuff, really, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever go back further into the black and white Doctor Who, then? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've watched uh, a lot of Partner, a lot of Troughton. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's not quite as sophisticated, uh, no. but it, you know, there's some. There's, I mean, there are some fantastic episodes. You know, the um, you know the imagery of the, the Cybermen walking down the the, uh, the from Saint Paul's Cathedral. In it. Oh yeah, yeah, fantastic. You know, so that's a great episode, and uh, you know the um, and, and obviously again, Trout with the um, Ice Warriors was great and. Yes, yes, some of them. You know, they are they are of their era, aren't they? You know, but yeah. But for me, and maybe because I grew up in the seventies or whatever, Pertwee and Baker were were my thing. But you know, beyond that, I still think Peter Davidson, Colin Baker, good, ep- good episodes, solid episodes that went on after that. You know, but I think the hit rate, you know, diminished really. Yeah, yeah, totally. Should we move on then and get back to the subject of Paul Draper? Why not? <laughs> well, after the Anchorers came out, the uh, um, Anchorers album came out, then you were in the studio working on an album that apparently you'd started way back after Manson had first split up, like 20 years earlier, or the better part of 20 years earlier. What was it like going back into the studio, working on your own material, as opposed to being a producer, co-writer and so on for other people? Yeah, well, just so your listeners know, Manson split up in two thousand three, and um, I oh, fifteen years then. Yeah, was probably, I went yeah. to I curated the Manson catalogue, which was we put the greatest hit, a lot of unreleased material that we put on a box set called Kleptomania, mm. and then I went off and started a career in writing and producing and working in studios, and I went to work with Skin from Skunk and Nancy, um, made her solo album with her, and then I. Came back to look. We did that in France, and then I set up my own studio in uh, Acton in in West London, and uh, as well as doing my own stuff in there, we we would rent it out commercially. So we had like Frank Ocean in there and Pixie Lot, and a lot of famous musicians, you know. Wow. And, yeah. Uh, I'd done bits and bobs for record companies, like writing for their artists, and nothing really took off. So I wanted to take an artist on and um, do the whole project myself at my studio, and that was the Anchor S. And, um, you know, this is like that sort of missing decade. To me, it wasn't missing. I was just, you know, it, it was, I was busy working on music every day and in my studio, you know, doing various projects. But after I'd done the Anchor Act, um, I basically did, a, a, you know, some promotion for it, which is how I came to speak to you originally. Hmm. And um, ended up speaking to the Huffington Post and uh, Enemy and stuff like that. And then I just basically got so many offers to do a solo album after that it was um 
it was just became obvious that, that um, rather than produce the second Anchorass album, although I have been involved in it on the writing side, um, that I would do a solo album, and that's where I'm, you know, that's 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 where my career's taken me. Really, it was um, it was a long time between finishing Manson and doing my solo album. However, I had started a lot of the songs when I'd left Manson. I just shelved them. That was all. Yeah, yeah. But a big part of this album was taking out those old songs, dusting them off, getting a band together, making them sound modern, you know, keeping the ground to what's going on in music now. I didn't want to just do a Britpop rehash. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I had to write some new songs and fill the gaps in, and, and I put that together over a period of a few months, and uh, we put the album out, Spooky Action, and uh, it went in the top 20, so it was uh, delighted, really. You know, I didn't, didn't, think, didn't think it would... You know, we just thought it would just be for the Manson fan base, but uh, after that's gone on and it's done really well in terms of sales, so the record company has signed me up for a second one, so that's where I'm at now. I'm doing my second solo album. Fantastic to hear. I really liked the first album. Great. Um, did you enjoy doing it? I did. I loved doing it, yeah. I mean, my, my least part... My least favourite part of the whole process is singing. Oh, really? I love all the studio work. I love uh, working with the mixing desks and the, all the equipment and recording things. And, you know, um, that's that's my side of things, really. So the only difference between when I produced the records with Skin or, or from Skunk and Nancy or the Anchoress was with this record at the end, I just had to sing on it myself, you know. Yeah, yeah. So... There was a to start with. I, You've got a great voice, though. <laughs> you can't deny it of people. You know, I thought originally. I thought put myself into a mental space where I thought I'm a record producer, you know, and a songwriter, and I'm mm. producing a sort of a half finished album that I was tinkering and thinking about working on in the uh, noughties, you know, and then so. I looked at it like that, and then I sang it, and we put it in, and then, um, you know, we had such a demand for tickets, we ended up going out and selling 12,000 tickets and doing, I think, 20 sold-out UK shows and over in Dublin as well, so so that went great. You know, we, we've actually taken it out on the road and, and reconnected with the Manson fan base now, so I'm, I've, I've just found myself in the position by going down this route of being... A solo artist, you know, so I, I am a solo artist now, and I didn't expect to get here. But yeah. But I am. And, oh, well, I, I was going to save this till after I'd done my top five Manson, but we seem to be there, so why not? I came, thank you very much, because you invited me to come and see you on, uh, well, in your day in Bristol, which was the closest one to where I am. You did a set. A shorter set, I've got to be honest with you, I could completely happily have listened to the entire solo album live first and then Attack of the Grey Lantern in its entirety afterwards. But you did a shorter set first. And because of what you've said about you being sort of more of a studio bard and like enjoy doing the work in the studio, I wasn't sure how it might translate live. But that band you've put together, it sounded fantastic. Yeah, they're a really great band, you know. Which which show did you come to, SWX? Um, Bristol. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah the band were um, the band were uh, 
um, yeah, really good. You know, we, we think we did a couple of weeks rehearsals to get ourselves all up to speed. And obviously, you know, I'm always going to throw some Manson songs, they're my songs, into my set. But, you know, predominantly, as long as I can keep moving forward, I'm doing my solo material and the songs of spooky action in the EPs I've done. And I'm happy with that because as an artist, you want to keep moving forward, you know. So, uh, yeah, you know, we've done two shows in Bristol now. And they're, they're both great, you know, and um, we've... Uh, you know, and just reconnecting with all the Manson fans. The good thing is that nobody, I'm not getting any feedback that my solo stuff's weaker than the Manson stuff. I've, I'm just getting a load of feedback from people saying that they're really into my solo stuff and, you know, they're not clamoring for a Manson reunion or anything. They're accepting that that's, part of what I did and now they've moved on to Spooky Action and the EPs and we've put a live album out now live at Scala so again if any of listeners want to check out the live shows they can listen to that on YouTube or the streaming services or um, what have you but it's um, but yeah it's really uh, it's really gone gone well and the, the record company has signed me up to do a second solo album so that's it now I'm in it oh yes back being a jobbing musician again <laughs> yeah, I I always got the impression when you were in Manson that you didn't enjoy playing live so much as you enjoyed being in the studio. But I got the impression watching you on stage in Bristol that you were actually having a really good time. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably down to the fact that you know someone's let me off the leash out the studio and I just made up to be doing some gigs. I actually didn't think I'd enjoy the gigs as much as I did. Um, they were it was just like a bonus but it's you know and then now we're getting festival offers and we've been over and played in the states and think we're going over to europe and we're looking at the far east now and you know i can either stay miserable about it and think oh i want to go back to my studio or just embrace it so i'm just embracing it now you know it's my you know i'm, I'm a bit older and a bit wiser so you know yeah I'm not a young man anymore in a rock band you know i'm just i'm i'm i'm, I'm going to enjoy every, every gig that i can you know yeah, absolutely. And just speaking of sort of like having a healthy perspective on things, coming into a solo career, like 15 years after the split up of the band, some artists might have said, right, I'm not going to touch the old material. This is all about me and my new material. And then other artists might have said, well, let's do a bit of the old material and mostly concentrate on the new stuff. But, and this is sort of taking place through social media as well, because you talk to the fans about this on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else and get feedback and then you sort of the feedback builds into what you're doing and to actually go out on tour and do you know the entire first Manson album all in order as a package as part of your your sort of solo set I I don't know anybody else who has ever or would ever do that but because you balance between the new and the old, but you're sort of presenting the old as part of the package, as opposed to just something that you're doing because you feel you have to, that seems to me like a really healthy way to go out and do that live material. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, um, I mean, a lot of bands just go out on the nostalgia thing, you know what I mean? I, mean, yeah. I, I just couldn't do that. 
But at the same time, if I... Yeah, because, sorry, just to interrupt, this is not greatest hits. If you were doing it for the nostalgia, it would be greatest hits. But you're actually playing the albums. You're actually doing this with sort of more of a purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the you know, Manson was an album band, you know what I mean? The fact mm. outlasted the band, you know, particularly Attack of the Grey Lantern and Six, which are, you know, the, the critically acclaimed ones. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go out and just do that stuff. I mean, we had loads of offers to just call myself Manson and just go out and play the greatest hits and coin it in, but I have no interest. Oh, really? Mm. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in making a new album and playing new tracks to people as a challenge to myself, you know, as an artist, and hopefully people like my new stuff as well as playing Attack of the Grey Lantern. So if people come see Attack of the Grey Lantern, hopefully they can get into my solo career through that. And if they just heard my solo stuff, they can get into the Manson stuff. So it feeds each other. But the the balance uh, of, of what I've got. I mean, I look. You know, I went to see U2 last year, and they played the whole of the Joshua Tree. Um, you know, I went to see Paul Weller, and he played like four jam songs and a Style Council song. So you're never going to be able to shed your past. Yeah, yeah. Do is you just you just don't milk it and, and dwell on it. You know what I mean? You just integrate it into what you're doing now. Um, and keep moving forward and doing new stuff and that's what keeps it fresh for yourself you know otherwise it's soul destroying but um yeah i've worked out a good balance and i do i'm on i'm on social media and i run things through the fans like at the minute i'm planning on doing um because we did some acoustic dates in the states and they went really well i'm going to go to some cities in the uk that i haven't been to before the end of the year and do some acoustic shows and i'm going to get the fans to pick the set list so if any of your listeners are on Twitter or or, or on Facebook, you can just go find my polls on there that I put up. I've got it on my Twitter page, which is just at Paul Draper, or there's a, 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 a fan group on um, a Facebook called Manson's Only Love Song Fan Group, where lots of fans can meet and talk and sell records, and they have meetups and stuff and meet at gigs. And So we're doing polls on there for what songs they actually want me to play. You know, So I'm always going to include you know the fans uh, like that that way when you get to the gig <laughs> you know you've got a you've got a head start really <laughs> and not just that you kind of also feel like you're a part of what's happening on the stage a little bit more than you ordinarily would well it's that as well you got to remember the manson fan base when the band split up pretty acrimoniously they never went away you know they still had their forums they still yeah. had their meetups they've had a few big conventions i mean they had one convention where 600 people turned up you know they have um, they have a lot of uh, you know online forums and stuff. Yeah, yeah, social media. There's, there's yeah. this big, big Facebook group with about twenty thousand people, and a lot of people know each other from all over the world, and you know it's a place to meet friends and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a whole community, you know. Um, people follow that like man, man, the, the the band has an e team, and they. You know, still put Manson pictures up on their Instagram feed every day, and you can follow the band on Twitter. And you know, it's still all alive, even though it ended a long time ago. And it just lives through the fans, really. So, you know, the, the fans sort of just demand it. I do it, really. Yeah, yeah. As long as long as they keep wanting me to do stuff, I'll keep going. You know, that's all you can do as an artist. I mean, I, I, if I was literally playing to fifty people in the back of the pub, I'd probably give up. You know, but I mean. I think the last gig we played in London, there was like seven, 1,700 people turned up, you know, to see one of the solo wow. shows. So it was just phenomenal, the interest, you know. And I'm, of course, I'm not a pop star anymore, you know, I'm not. 
Uh, we got cut off there, I'm afraid. In fact, I might as well say this now. I'll probably put something on at the start of the podcast as well. We were intending to do this on Skype. All sorts of things have gone wrong. And in the end, we've not been able to do this ideally. So the quality of the sound recording is not what we would have liked it to be. But you're coming through mostly loud and clear. So people will be able to hear you. And that's the important thing. So my apologies for... um you know, the quality not being what it could have been. Um, I kind of got lost from where we cut off. So shall we move straight into my top five Manson songs? Yeah, go for that, mate. Okay, then. And I did this as a five, so I'm going to count down from five to one. Um, I've got three singles on this list because I went through everything and thought, ooh, that, ooh, this. And to be honest, I could probably have done a top 40. But when it came down to it, when you pick your actual top five, you can't avoid the big hitters. But at number five, slightly left field, I'm going to choose Television, which is a song. Which is oh, a song. Yeah, well, it's a song from uh, Six. It's from the second half of Six. Because uh, as a lot of people listening will know, because I know a lot of Doctor Who fans are Manson fans. And actually on the forums, the Doctor Who forums, you will find Manson threads. Yeah. And a lot of the time they will be talking about Six, not just because of the Tom Baker involvement, but because the style of the album seems to mirror what the the kind of music the Doctor Who fans like, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, the second half of uh of uh Six, you kind of got four songs as opposed to the sort of prog stuff that's on the first side. And television, right, this is going to be, okay, I'm going to surprise you with this. This is going to be a bit odd. The very first album I ever bought when I was a kid was Penthouse and Pavement by Heaven 17. And Glenn Frey, the singer from Heaven 17, a lot of his vocals are really sort of in-your-face, quite strident vocals. But when he does the more subtle stuff, there's a sort of deafness and humour to his voice that you don't hear on so many of the Heaven 17 songs. But when I listen to television, your vocals in the verses on television reminds me a little bit of being in love with Heaven 17 all those years ago when I was that much younger. And then when you get to the chorus, it does that great thing that I love, especially live. When you did Dark Mavis during the Attack of the Great Lantern stuff, when you get to those repeated bits at the end, you just really get into a groove with it and you don't ever want it to stop. And that's what happens in television too. So although it might not be necessarily one of the Manson songs that sort of, you know, gets brought up in conversation too often, it's in my top five. It's one of those ones that it just comes on and I just think, oh, television, what a cracking song. Right. <laughs> what are you? What, what was the inspiration for writing it then? Uh, I think television um, lyrically was about the claustrophobia of spending my life stuck in hotel rooms, I think. Oh, right, yeah. Watching Sky News. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of Sky News on there. Yeah, we had to pay a fortune for that sample, yeah. But, the, um, but yeah, I, I think if you listen back to that track, Television Up 6, it will evoke, you know, there I am in a rock band, endlessly lying on hotel beds in whatever city it is just watching sky news in the uh in the corner and uh 
just never been able to escape. <laughs> I know what you mean. You know, the monotony of it all. Actually, just talking of that, the the three albums, really, each one of them, I know, the first one, first two were sort of described as prog albums but it's more of a theme the first one is about observations of people the second one is about observations of life and the third one is about observations of relationships that's how they strike me would you say that's fair to say yeah yeah i mean the 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 third album was going to be called the trouble with relationships oh really yeah well there you go yeah we uh but yeah i mean we were sort of forced by the record company to do something a little bit more mainstream and they just but they battered it too mainstream in the end but um yeah there's themes running running through them all yeah yeah i mean they're they're doing this attack the lantern reissue at the minute and they're doing the um they're doing this box set which is out on june the 8th and it's got all the outtakes in there. There's a seventy-page book written about all the meanings of stuff wow. by uh, Paul, the eminent Q journalist, and uh, and there's loads of photographs of my notebooks from the making of the album in in there. So if anyone is interested in all these running themes and hidden meanings in the Manson stuff, you know, uh, probably that that the, the four-disc box set is your. Uh, is uh, would be right up your street, and if you've been trying to get any Manson records on vinyl for like 160 quid on uh, eBay, they're they're actually finally putting out Attack of the Grey Lantern on vinyl on June the 8th, so you can get you'll be able to get it for 20 quid finally. Wow! Speaking of Attack of the Grey Lantern, that's where my next choice is coming from. I was so close to picking "She Makes My Nose Bleed," but in the end. I would go to bed and I would wake up the following morning and I would wake up the following morning always with Stripper Vicar in my head. So in the end, I had to choose Stripper Vicar. There you go. Well, you know, that's that's the most slapstick, comedic song on the album, isn't it? You know, I guess. But uh, I suppose that's the linchpin of the story of the album and what the story's all about, yeah. really, I guess. But it's just... I suppose, you know, it's the hypocrisy of it all, you know. But also, musically, what I think Stripper Vicar does, and I think she may, well, I think all your songs do it, but I think these are two great examples, and it, this is sort of why I was going to pick She Makes My Nose Bleed, but Stripper Vicar does it as well. It's sort of, the songs, the verses, the bridges, there's always loads of bridges, the choruses, middle eights. Unlike some people who just do a three-chord trick, and then, you know, a chorus, and then back to the three-chord trick or whatever, there's a lot of invention and a lot of, um, I don't know, kineticism, a lot of movement in Manson songs. And sometimes you'll go from a verse to a chorus via a bridge or whatever, and from the outside, it almost sounds like they're two completely different songs, but they fit together so perfectly that there's a sort of unpredictable quality about a lot of your songs. And I think those two singles perfectly encapsulate that sort of movement from one thing to another and back again, and yet still making it all sound completely coherent and works. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would, you know, I'd write little bits of melodies and lyrics and put chords with it and stuff, and I would do little sections, and I would try a different section with it. So a lot of them, you know, verses and choruses and a lot of songs were written at different times and glued together. And then I would try and transpose them all to see how they ran into each other. You know, there's a, 
there's just a lot of messing around with with some stuff. We're all just sort of like disgusting of of um, Attack the Grey Line. I just done that in 20 minutes, like literally right. just straight off. Whereas Super Vicar was a lot more complex. When I look back at that one now, at the middle eight, where it does like almost the rap bit, I wish I'd have put that as the chorus. I always think I wish I'd have had that as the chorus now, and then had the chorus as the middle eight, because that would have made it such a much much better pop song. Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been higher up the charts, but you know, you live and learn. I was told that by an A&R and put that as your chorus, and I just left it. But you know, you can't dwell on everything forever, and you have to let it go. So I can't, you know, I'll probably I'll be walking down the street this afternoon, going, "Oh, I knew I should have put that." <laughs> but but um, but yeah, you do you do learn to leave these things go, but. Uh, um, that was one of the stupidest things we ever did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun, and it's and it, and you say it's stupid, and I say it's fun. But at the same time, it's not silly in the way something like Black Lace or whatever is silly. It's still a no, great a, pop song. Yeah, it was studied in a way as it was. It's very quintessentially, you know, nineteen seventies, you know, Monty Python esque humor. Yeah, Monty Python esque humor with a slight inflection of that sort of classic British kinks sort of yeah League, League of Gentlemen type yeah, thing that sort yeah. of wry look at life throwing the keys in the table. Yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. on the subject yeah. of a wry look at life and sticking with Attack of the Grey Lantern you know I wasn't going to pick this because it seemed too obvious but then I saw you play it live and it was so good live it went right onto my sort of top five list. Is tax loss? Oh, tax loss. And what? Yeah. Well, what you do with tax loss is you sort of take the rhythm from. Um, oh, I can't think of the name of the song. The uh, John Lennon song from uh, Revolver at the end. Yeah, I mean the whole the, the whole thing is is basically well, not the whole thing. It starts as a parody of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. It starts as like a. Uh... A, a generic parody of the Beatles, you know. Um, but the point being of the song that um, instead of us being multi-millionaire rock stars worrying about the tax man, that we're actually nobodies who've just got signed as a tax loss. <laughs> so we're taking the, a record company, which is Parlophone, who was the Beatles record label. So that's the, that's the whole story about that. I think it was very, very contentious at the time. And people thought, you know, are you pushing the boundaries of what art can be here, or, you know? Well, it's. You know, and I would describe it as like, well, you know, does Andy, is Andy Warhol doing a screen print of Marilyn Monroe, an art, a statement, or is it just a fucking screen print of Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, all I know is I went to art college, and I, I, I thought the tax loss was a really creative track. And I would probably stick with now, you know. Well, I th- the thing about it is, it's yeah, it sort of starts off as a pastiche, but it's beautifully done, and the me- yeah, and the yeah. melodies and the harmonies yep. and everything, and the production on it. Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dance track with the whole room just yeah, in a beefy, <laughs> which I can tell you is very difficult to do. Oh yeah, well, the fa- well, fa- quite famously, I think that was always the one where the live performance and the version on the record would often be quite far apart. Is that not right? 
Yeah, I think with my once he's performed it live, I think it's a lot closer to the record. But I think that track, more than anything, really comes alive, you know, because it turns into a dance track, yeah. you know, it turns into an Ibiza dance track, and halfway through, um, and you know, people go wild for it. But um, you know, that <laughs> that was just my sense of humour, yeah. you know. And uh, and I think this tra- it transcends sort of what it is to become something else. It's one of those songs. Uh, no, absolutely, yeah. By the time you put the video, it, it, it you know, it, it, it has its own personality yeah. and it's its own thing. I'd argue with anyone, whether it's creative or artistic or not. I think it is, but that's just my opinion. Some other people might just say it's a crap version of the Beatles, but, you know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, I meant it to, to be like that, you yeah, know, as yeah. a social where we were as a band, you know. Well, I think it's a version of the Beatles, and I'm a big Beatles fan, but I think it does them justice. I think it, <laughs> I think, I think it sits, I think it sits alongside things like Revolver, Help, Hard Day's Night. You know, obviously it's not the Beatles, but I, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a, there would be a quality dip if you listen to Revolver and then stuck tax loss on. I don't think there'd be a quality dip at all, frankly. Well, no, I think you know. I think well, if you know, if McCartney wants to borrow it back off me, I'm, I'll, I'll loan it. <laughs> anyway, I have met McCartney a oh, couple really? of times, and he said he said to me that he wants me to record uh, Helter Skelter. Oh, really? So I will Helter Skelter one day at the request of Submacker. Wow. Well, that's a nice story to tell. And well, because obviously I was in Manson, yeah. and Manson's raised psychopathic mind believed his war his race was the helter skelter yeah yeah that's the connection between me and paul mccartney wow in fact if you have got any Beatles fans uh listening to this podcast if you just go onto google and key my name in paul draper and then key in paul mccartney and google it you'll find a really good two-part interview uh between me and paul mccartney about songwriting and uh, being from Liverpool and he's talking a lot about his wife Linda because it was for the I interviewed him for the reissue of his Ram album which is a great album of course yes I do remember that now you've brought it up changing the subject slightly (laughs) yes definitely something to recommend people go for changing the subject ever so slightly but on the subject of connections I meant to mention this earlier but Chad that used to be in Manson, was born in Exeter, where I am sitting here recording this interview from, which is, I guess, my connection with Manson, I suppose. <laughs> Just the location of where he was born. There you go. <laughs> anyway, on to my number two, and on the subject of your third album, The Trouble With Relationships, or Little Kicks, as it would be known, I think you know what I'm going to say, because I think I've mentioned it to you before. Until the next life. Yeah, you know, the um, I, I would say that's one of the best songs I've ever written, really. I think uh, Until the Next Life After Little Kicks is a, is a great song. I don't think it's a great recording, but it's a good song. And I also think of the unreleased fourth Manson album, which we put out posthumously, I think Keep Telling Myself is the other great song that I that I wrote, you know. And um, But yeah, Until the Next Life, you know, technically, best song they ever wrote for Manson, I think. Yeah. Ah, and it's and for anybody, and you'll hear a bit of it in a snatch in a minute because obviously I'll put that little medley thing on that I said. Um, it's the Walker Brothers meets Queen. 
The walkabouts, wow, I'd, I'd take that. I'll take I, that. I, and it's, and you can tell it's sort of pastiching sort of various types of music, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what we put was just my home demo. I just, I just did like a, a very over the top, sort of used an 80s drum machine and a synth pad, and it was, <laughs> it was never meant to go out like that, but things were just so bad in the relationship with people, we just couldn't, or, or people, whatever people's interest would put it out like that. I would have redone it properly as a band, but it is what it is. Um, you know, and it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's a song, you know, the, 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 you have to look for the song inside it. I think the song's one of the best songs I, I ever wrote, really. Yeah, I completely agree. It's another one I would say that sort of transcends what it is to become, I think it's one of the great songs of your career and one of the great songs of... You know, my love of music, I think, is one that always stays with me. Yeah, I thought that's really nice, you know. I mean, it's one that was sort of overlooked on Manson, but um, I have a feel. I'm going out doing an acoustic tour in November, so I have a feeling I'm going to be playing that one on the acoustic guitar. Oh, great. Well, that would be fantastic. Yes, yeah, strip it back to just me and a guitar and, you know, show people the song. Yeah, because it's one that really... It's... You you have an amazing facility for coming up with um, lyrical melodies that are really catchy, but also quite affecting. You know that 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 period in Manson, we were sort of the powers that be had told us that I'd gone so obtuse lyrically on the first two albums that they wanted something more universal. So you know that was a very conscious decision to write a more universal lyric. Yeah, and I tell you, I actually really like Little Kicks because, and. It, you know, I don't want to sound contrary, but I, I sometimes really like it when an artist goes completely out of their comfort zone and is forced to use all the tricks that I suppose they've built up as part of their repertoire on something else in another way that they're not used to. And I think sometimes that is what provokes something different and unique and odd and 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 sometimes really good and i i, I know little kicks is not a favorite among your fandom but i really like that album you know there seems to be a mellowing towards that album with age um i, I actually did that period of songwriting i hit my peak yeah yeah uh, i got the production and mixing right and we 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 put it out too early it, it was just a business deal by other people it needed more work um, but when I look back now, what's there? I quite like the opening track, Butterfly, comes as no surprise. I can only disappoint you until the next yeah, live. Yeah. I quite like me as well. I don't mind soundtrack for two lovers. So, you know, half it's all right. There's just a couple on there that were just, didn't, just didn't work, you know, just didn't work. And I think, oh, and Electric Man. I didn't choose Electric Man, but I just think that's the best single Bowie never made. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm, not, I'm not mad on that one. It's too poppy for me. Ah, fair enough. I also think it's an album where the last couple of tracks, it's sort of, the last couple of tracks, maybe the last three tracks, suddenly feel like, okay, we've done what they told us to do, now let's just have a bit of fun. And the last two or three just sound like you're letting your hair down and having some fun. You know, I'd have to go back and listen to it. But, um, you know, one one thing, now we're doing all these reissues, obviously June the 8th, the start of the um, Attack of the Reissues, so... You know, if any of in listeners are interested, you go to your record shop and buy them, or, or from my buy them from the Manson website. There is a Manson website that still runs. Yeah, yeah. You know the um, 
Um, yeah, I th- I, you know, I think that these records will, you know, we'll we'll see how they're reevaluated in time as a BNB issue. You know, that's that, that's that, that, that's the best way to look at it, I think. Right, I'm going to get to my number one now because I think I've kept you long enough. Um, but my number one, and this is easily inside my top five songs of all time, is Legacy. Oh, right, great. Yeah, Legacy. You know, again, Legacy. Like, I think the ones that people remember, not outside the fan base, obviously everyone knows why that was there. Yeah. A lot of people know Daddy Love Me, The Strings. There's been a lot of TV shows. I can only disappoint you's grown over the years. But yeah, I think Legacy's a, a song that maybe hasn't been rediscovered yet. Maybe it'll take the the reissue of six next year when we're reissuing the six album to uh you know to to uh for that song to get back into people's consciousness again it's it is for me everything i said about until the next life everything i said about um stripper vicar it's it combines all those things and it's so it gets you do you know what i mean as soon as you start singing or as soon as the guitar i love kind of uh, counterpoint guitar work uh, and so when you've got two different melodies going on at the same time and then your voice comes in and then every bridge i mean the first bridge or the bridge in um legacy is like two bridges it's first bridge into a bridge into the chorus and then even when you get to the chorus it goes on again into the next bit of the chorus it's one of those songs that oh, i don't know as i'm listening to it it's just it gets better incrementally every 10 seconds do you know what i'm saying i think you know i think i learned that trick from abba <laughs> yeah yeah so if they don't get you with the first chorus get them with the second one and legacy just absolutely grabs me by the gut every time i hear it but yeah i will you know i haven't listened to these songs for a long time but i uh, i'm sure i'll be playing them at a venue near you soon <laughs> hopefully so and that actually seems a good point to leave it um because I have, I've kept you a lot longer than I really intended to, and I'm sure you've got plenty to do. Yeah. Um, but, Paul, th- thank you so much for taking time out to come and do this. It has been really nice to actually get you to talk about Doctor Who for 20-odd minutes in the middle, and it's been great yeah. to sort of sit down and actually think about making up a list of, you know, my favourite Manson songs too. It will, no. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's been my pleasure to come on. So I will, um, I will come, when my second solo album's ready next in about a year, eighteen months away, I shall come back and I'll do my. Um, although I did throw a Pertwee one in, I'll do my top five Pertwee episodes for you. <laughs> yeah, with one Tom Baker thrown in for balance, maybe. Yeah, and I'm hoping to see some fans of some Who fans come up to me at gigs and say I heard you on the the blue box podcast oh right so there's a challenge anybody who's hearing this who goes to a a paul draper gig you have to go up afterwards and let him know that you've been listening to this yeah or they they can always track me down on social media i'm on twitter and instagram and facebook and all that they know where i am well absolutely right you you're all over it so go and find paul like him follow him whatever it is and go out and get those albums because they're terrific. Okay, thanks, buddy. I shall speak to you very soon. Brilliant. Cheers, Paul. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. All my life, what I mistook for friendly pats on the back were really the hands that pushed me further and further down. The more I struggle, the less I achieve. 
Sun. 